This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the novelist and historian Nathaniel Rich about his new book, Second Nature, Scenes from a World Remade. It's a fine book, Nathaniel, a brilliant sequence of well-told tales. But before we get to two or more of them, maybe you can begin with the idea that binds them together. What does it mean to say that the world of nature, forests, oceans, fish and cows and flowers, is the creation of human beings? That man, not God, is the maker of our universe? Well, thank you. It's it's a thrill to to speak with you and and to be on your your program. I I think what I'm what I'm trying to get at here is um, it's it's important first of all to go back a step and and understand that throughout human civilization, uh, our relationship with the natural world um, has been incredibly vexed and antagonistic for most of that history. Um, you know, if you go back to the Bible, for instance, um, the term wilderness is used uh, to defined as, you know, attractive solitude and savageness. It's, it's seen as this um, chaos that human beings need to strive to, to stamp out. And that sentiment, of course, goes back long before the Bible and, and continues really um, into the industrial age where human beings, um, for most of our, our civilization, as I said, have been trying to stamp out you know, wildness and its perceived dangers um, wherever we we settle. And it's only in in recent, in the last couple centuries, where that that relationship has begun to change, in part because uh, through our own activities, we've reconfigured the planet so dramatically and so you know, devastatingly um, that we no longer feel this same sense of danger that we once once did. And furthermore, we've started to romanticize what, what's been lost. And again, that's another recent development that dates from the, the middle 19th century, from, from thinkers like Alexander Humboldt and, and later acolytes like George Perkins Marsh and, and John Muir. And so today, if you jump, jump all the way to the present, present day, you know, there's a deep longing to return to some kind of more natural landscape to to a, a more natural uh, natural relationship with 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 the world but by now there's really nothing on the planet uh that by any conventional you know definition of of the term nature or, or wild has not been you know th- that fulfills that definition that there, there's no such thing as a square inch of of soil or even you know a a cubic yard of the atmosphere um, that hasn't been reconfigured or influenced dramatically by our our presence, usually through you know carelessness and recklessness, but sometimes through malice and exploitation. And so, what second nature is about is is our our dawning awareness of this this condition, this idea that we're not inseparable from from the natural world, and furthermore that we've we've sculpted it in these dramatic ways. And we're only beginning now to understand the great damage that we've done and the repercussions that we have. And and furthermore, um, we're starting to take responsibility for this and trying to determine ways in which 
we can use the same technology uh, or better technology and and more responsible um, you know system of ethics really to try to bring back what's what's been lost if not in actuality then at least help restore some of the qualities that that we that we're missing but whatever whatever we do we're going to make it new i mean <laughs> that that's the point i mean that we will continue to reconfigure our fauna and flora and genome but to what end and and, and, and how and and that's what you mean by the what you call the nature lag and the age of soul decay delay the trajectory of our era running from naivete to shock to horror to anger to resolve is that that, that, that that's fair yeah I, I think the question is you know there's no question of you know intervene or don't intervene it we're, we're centuries past the <laughs> that fork in the road um, you know we are intervening with every you know, step or every activity. And so the question is, how do we, how do our future interventions, how do we do so responsibly? How do we do so for, you know, to uphold the, you know, our better, our, our highest angels instead of our, you know, our, our, our lowest demons. Um, and so the, this, this idea of, uh, you know, a, a soul delay, I mean, I, I, I'm borrowing here from the novelist William Gibson a, a bit where, you know, he has this famous line about, you know, the future is here, but it's, it's, uh, it's not evenly distributed yet. And I think, you know, living today in this moment, one is constantly, you know, presented with these very uncanny, alarming glimpses of, of some, you know, radically um, futuristic eventuality that we're, that we're speeding towards. And it's, I think, you know, I find when I encounter something like, uh, you know, chicken made in a test tube, or um, you know, genetic engineering used to bring back extinct species. To take a couple of examples from the book, there's there's a deep eeriness and an unsettling quality to it, and yet I, I think we also know that you know we're we're inevitably being pushed in this direction of greater intervention, more focused intervention, and more precise intervention. And so there's this eeriness. I think in this we're in a transitional moment where we've you know we've inherited these in, insane powers, godlike powers. And we're only now beginning to realize, you know, to ask questions like, well, how should we use them? What kind of, you know, rules should be in place? What what should guide us? How should we think about these changes? And how should we also, you know, how should we reckon with the enormous changes that we've we've done to this point to get us into this uh, predicament? And so that that eeriness is what is at the heart of of the stories in the in the book. You divide the book into three parts crime scene season of disbelief as gods and they're they're all about interventions and with with nature so let's tell a story about each in each one of your categories so, yep, from crime scene talk about what you call dark waters yeah dark waters is is one of the most incredible stories i've i've ever come across certainly and, and written about it's it's the story of this lawyer named Robert Balot who's a you know conservative midwestern corporate defense lawyer in Cincinnati working for a you know very uh, conservative firm there and because of a family connection a sort of moment of um, 
misplaced nostalgia for his childhood, perhaps. He, he, decide, he agrees to take on a case for this poor farmer in West Virginia who, who is a friend of a friend of his grandmother. And he, the, the farmer is complaining that um, his cattle are, are dying in, in horrible and gruesome ways because they've been, they've been drinking poisonous water. And he blames DuPont, which, which operates this gigantic chemical plant in Parkersburg, West Virginia, for the problem. And, and he believes that, the farmer believes that the, the DuPont has been dumping these um, hazardous chemicals into a landfill that then runs through you know, a creek into, into the farmer's property. And you know, Balat doesn't really believe it. He's, he's worked with DuPont. He's a corporate guy. He can't imagine that DuPont would, um, you know, behave uh, so amorally and and not take the, the proper precautions. But he he investigates and and pretty soon, you know, using the methods that he's honed as a corporate defense lawyer, having knowing how these these giant corporations work, he ultimately you know hits the jackpot. I guess you could say he gets these you know millions of pages of discovery from DuPont and learns that they have been embroiled in this. 50-year campaign. I think it's it's not an overstatement to say it's it's you know one of the the biggest criminal corporate conspiracies in American history to use a man-made man-made chemical that they they manufacture Teflon pans with and and any number of other consumer products that this chemical which does not biodegrade it's extremely um, strongly bound that it enters uh, bloodstream of of people who are exposed to it. And never, never leaves your body, and furthermore causes all kinds of horrible health conditions. And it turns out that the cattle had been ingesting huge quantities of it, and 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 so he very quickly settles the the cattle case. But then starts to realize that it's not just the cattle; it's the people in the neighboring towns. Their water's been poisoned by it, and ultimately he realizes that it's not just you know parkersburg or these counties in west virginia but the entire world um, has been exposed to so so ma- so many of these forever chemicals as they're called that it's become part of our biological inheritance that we all have these chemicals in our in our bloodstream and they're they're carcinogenic and and so for you know decades now he's and he's still he's still pressing forward now he has a class action case on behalf of every american ongoing uh, in an Iowa, Ohio courthouse now, but he's been fighting DuPont and and winning. Um, but it's been a grueling battle that's come at a lot of a great personal cost. Talk a little bit about that. Give me a timeline. In, in other words, since w- the drug that you're, I mean, sorry, the chemical you're talking about is called what? PFOA. PFOA. Yeah. Uh, DuPont had been using it starting in the, when, the 50s? They had started using it um, in 1951. Um, they had bought it from 3M, which got out of the business a little earlier, so they avoided some of the legal culpability. But o- almost right away, um, these companies understood that this chemical was dangerous uh, to people. But it made them so much money. You know, Teflon products were making something like a billion dollars in profit a year by the time you get into the 1980s and 90s. That, you know, there were over the years there was there were a number of moments where Dupont and 3M identified some replacement chemicals that could be uh, slotted in and and would function. You know, have a similar similar chemical properties, but would not be so dangerous to human health. And 
at those junctures, you know, the scientists and doctors within these giant corporations urged the the business side to, you know, to to move the chemicals to, you know, to to change them over. And every time DuPont's uh, executives said no, because they didn't want to risk their profit stream, even in the outside chance that the chemicals, the new chemicals wouldn't, you know, work as well as as PFOA was enough to scare them from from it. And meanwhile, they kept hitting all of their alarming studies that kept coming out over you know decades about the enormous you know damage that this these chemicals were doing to to people, to workers, and and even people in the in the community. When when does the lawyer Billot come into the story? When does the West Virginia farmer show up? in Bilot's Cincinnati office with photographs of sick cattle. Yeah, it's not till 1998 or 99, I believe. And so this has been going on for, you know, ages. And, and you know, Bilot is a fascinating figure to me. I've spent a lot of time with him now. Um, his story has now been made into a movie, Dark Waters, with Mark Ruffalo plays him. And it's... You know, he he strikes me as in a, in a way he's a kind of avatar for all of us because he's somebody who's just you know going about. I mean, we're not all corporate you know chemical company lawyers, but he he's going to you know around, along with his life. He there are certain assumptions he makes about the world, including about you know corporations, about business in America, um, about you know who are the good actors and and, and the bad, and he he really can't wrap his mind around the fact that that something so criminal and so dastardly and, and, and evil could be, could be happening under his nose. And, and, and furthermore, this whole idea that we've all been poisoned by it to some degree, it, it forces him to really reassess everything in his life and, you know, his values, uh, his mission in life, um, how he spends his days, how he raises his children. And I, and I think that, all of us, to some degree, maybe not to the you know, same degree as Rob Ballad, but once we encounter th- these kinds of facts, and uh, you know, when we're presented um, with these ideas uh, of, a, of you know, great environmental damage, you know, the dangers of climate change, uh, environmental pollution, and so on, when we really look at it squarely, I think it's it's deeply unsettling because it it forces us. It, it's, it's deeply disillusioning. It forces us to really throw away. A lot of of the um, our, our sort of assumptions about how we wish the world would work, and and forces us to reconsider. Um, I think some of our most basic uh, moral impulses. That's the wonderful thing about all of the stories that you tell center on courageous individuals who make the passage catch up on the soul delay. I mean, they start out naive, then it goes to shock and horror, then it becomes anger, and then it goes into resolve. And, and that's the trajectory of Bilot, and at no small cost to himself. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, he starts to, over the years, you know, he's under tremendous pressure because he's working for this 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 corporate law firm. He's, um, you know, any, any law, he's newly made partners when the story begins. You know they're under tremendous pressure to bill hours, to get major clients, and so on. They're, you know, his company's trying to woo Dupont for a number of case on a number of cases, 
And he gets involved in these cases where he's not only is he not making money, but he's expending enormous resources to try to hunt down, you know, the documents, the experts, uh, the scientists and so on. And he becomes totally isolated in his community. There's, you know, nobody, it's all his uh, colleagues stop talking to him. Uh, ultimately, he's forced to move to a satellite office across the Ohio River um, in Kentucky. And, and he, you know, has basically has no friends and he just has his wife and his, his children. Um, and even his children start to question his sanity at a, at a certain point because he, he goes many years before, you know, he, he gets any kind of settlement or acknowledge of malfeasance from DuPont. And, and yet he, he has no choice. I think he, he, you know, as you said, he becomes angry, he becomes resolved. And frankly, it gives his life meaning. And, and, and to this day, he continues to wage this, this pretty lonely fight. It's not as lonely as it, as it used to be, but it, it forced a kind of moral clarity that I think a really, uh, you know, direct reckoning with these issues does force if we're, if we're courageous enough to allow ourselves to really um, look at them squarely. Yes, I mean, most Americans don't know, as you point out, that they ingest, I mean, thousands of chemicals every day. I mean, it, 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 and without knowing anything about them in their... Yeah, I mean, the industry is not regulated. That's, that's no. I mean, that's one of the most shocking things to me, besides the fact that I had PFOA in my blood and was passing it on, you know, to my children. Um, but that that this industry is essentially unregulated. You know, there's Tosco has passed in the 1970s, it regulates, it's now up to, I think, seven or eight different chemicals. But if, you, if you're not, you know, making asbestos or something, basically these companies are responsible for alerting the federal government whether or not they detect anything that's toxic in their own products. And these companies are constantly churning out new chemicals. I mean, these are totally man-made creations. You say there are 85,000 of them in circulation. 85,000 in circulation. And, and, you know, there's a statistic in there that the average American, um, it, depends on gen- it depends on gender, I guess, because of different kind of products that men and women use in this country. But something between, you know, 60 and 80 or so of these um, are ingested every day. Um, and it's in our food, our, you know, cosmetics and, and so on. And the scary thing is, is not so much... It's not only that, you know, PFOA is out there and we're reckoning with it and, and its replacements, which may be just as bad in the long run, but it's, it's you know, that's one of 85,000 of these things that we don't know. You know, I'm sure the high majority of them are benign, but we don't know. You know, they're not really tested because the, the only uh, people who are responsible for testing it are the, the DuPonts and the Dows of the world. All right. Now, talk some about chickens without their heads cut off. <laughs> well, the story, story of Henry Park and his son, Nate. Well, I became fascinated by this idea of, of um, this uh, test tube chickens. And, and, and after I, I finished the book, but before it was published, um, Singapore has just signed into law and became the first country to allow uh, the sale of cultured meat, which is essentially meat grown in a in a lab using uh, skin cells uh, from you know a chicken or a cow and then and then you know reproduced enough time so that you can create something that at least that's made out of meat but and resembles you know a chicken breast or a chicken nugget or a steak and there are a lot of companies who are 
have spent you know billions of dollars already in this industry to try to be the first to market with these products. And you know, I think on one's first blush, uh, you know, response to this thing is it's 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 completely um, creepy and bizarre, and you know, you can't imagine wanting to eat some, you know, a Wagyu steak that was made by some scientists in, in test tubes in a centrifuge. But, but of course, the argument from the, these companies and the people who stand by them is that, you know, that there's nothing, um, <laughs> there's nothing moral about our, our system of, of, of animal agriculture, you know, the mass production and slaughter of these animals is a huge climate change menace. And furthermore, the animals themselves are human creations. I mean, the the chicken, uh, as we the domesticated chicken, the you know the cow. These animals never existed in nature. They were bred into being over generations. So we're already dealing with something that's uh, man-made, albeit using different different techniques, more prim- primitive techniques. And so, the idea is to feed the world meat that doesn't require killing a single animal. And so I I told this. I encountered this incredible father and son duo, the Parks. Uh, the the father Henry uh, from Central Illinois became a meat cutter at his uh, local grocery as as a teenager, and where they would, you know, just a, just a previous generation, a generation earlier um, in the '40s, I guess, they were slaughtering chickens in the basement when somebody wanted wanted to buy one. Of course, most people back then grew their own chickens uh, in their farms. And he tra- traveled, the, the family travels in, in one generation to the vanguard of this cultured meat industry because uh, Henry's son, Nate, uh, works for one of the, the big, these big startups called Just, which has you know, billions of dollars in, in uh, backing in Silicon Valley. And they, their product, a chicken nugget, is, will be the first uh, has just appeared on menus in in Singapore, and so it's the story. It's a story of a father and son, and and a generational shift, in which you also see this massive evolution in the way that we uh, will consume and you know produce and consume meat. You tell it as a wonderful story. I mean, over over the distance of two generations, and and we 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 get to making food with synthesizers and all kinds of weird instruments right <laughs> i mean yeah. our, our utensils are now you know liquid nitrogen <laughs> right. well it's what's fascinating what i didn't realize until talking with nate and, and reporting this this story is that the way this this started at least the just this 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 now a giant you know food business is that the the founder was basically watching YouTube videos. Um, you know, he was unemployed, living with his ex-girlfriend at on her couch in San Diego, watching YouTube videos about this sort of high high art uh, cuisine fad that that had begun in in Chicago, um, and then sort of swept the swept the nation, or at least the big cities. This molecular gastronomy, which was, you know, high concept entrees and and things things that would that didn't were form and content um, were were divorced. And so that you would have, you know, their famous dishes were things like um, the oil spill, which was a, a consomme that was made to look like a oil slick in the Gulf of Mexico. This was after Deepwater Horizon. I mean, quite, sometimes questionable 
taste. Um, you know, there was the Cuban cigar, which was a Cuban sandwich presented to look exactly like a Cohiba cigar in an ashtray, half smoked. And and he became obsessed with these techniques and, and these sort of food trickery. And it wasn't just the form, it was also the taste. They would have... Um, you know, uh, ice cream that tasted, that was a look, you know, looked like ice cream, but it tasted like a cheeseburger or vice versa, things like that. And <laughs> he started to realize that, um, you know, there was a new way of, of preparing food and we didn't need to be wedded to uh, the old practices. And, and some of those old practices uh, were in great need of reformation, particularly the, the cruelty and, and savagery of our, our uh, mass agricultural uh, industry and and especially um, you know what we do to cows and pigs and yeah right uh, and chicken. So we come out ahead in two ways. I mean, one we find it cheaper to produce food, and two we cut down the cruelty of our agricultural business and cut down carbon emissions significantly. Uh, down, and, and so yeah. it's a good yeah. example of, I think, a lot of these new changes that we're now sort of awash in as a society where, you know, it, it it's so different and radical and and kind of creepy that, that one rejects it naturally as, as grotesque, basically. But, but when you actually analyze it, it's hard to make <laughs> an argument against it um, unless you just appeal to some kind of sense of you know, I just want to do what I've always done. Um, but it's not that, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not right. that, you know, killing, yeah, you know, th yeah, these slaughterhouses yeah. are no, no more natural than. There's uh, more, there, there's more upside than downside. Certainly. You can't really make a moral argument um, yeah. <laughs> against it, you know, uh, except in, in favor of it. And so that, that tension though, that sort of your mind, mind telling you one thing and your gut uh, literally, you know, telling you another is part of this kind of eeriness that 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 I think suffuses this this moment and and is is really at the heart of 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 all of the stories in the book. Your last chapter is Green Rabbit. That carries the uh, the question into the reformulation of the human genome. And there's a lot of weirdness in in, in that and there's a lot of moral ambiguity. I mean to what degree can we manufacture designer human beings. Yeah, I mean, that's where a lot of this this stuff is going. I mean, I these genetic interventions, I mean, I, I um, it, it crops up again and again in these stories. It's not the only kind of interventions. There's, you know, interventions in terms of sculpting um, landscapes as well and, and so on. But, but yes, there's this enormous, you know, enormous rapid um, growth of genetic use of genetic technologies. I mean, I don't think a lot of people realize that the, all of these vaccines that we have now for, for COVID-19 were first tested in um, these genetically altered mice, for instance, that are called humanized mice. They're transgenic species. They're mice with human these ACE uh, receptors, um, so that it allows us to study how the vaccines uh, work on on the virus. And so, you know, this is already embedded in so much of our science uh, and technology of of, of this time um, before we even get to the most you know radical futuristic uh, developments that are that are coming along. And the the story Green Rabbit is about an artist, uh, Brazilian Chicago, an artist named Eduardo Katz, 
who created this this uh, international art scandal some years ago when he he produced a bunny rabbit that uh, glowed green like a this uh, fluorescent green glow under certain conditions and you know people were scandalized there were there were headlines all over the world about how dare this artist use use an uh, organic life form and alter alter it in service of of art and service of this gimmick and of course as he pointed out you know he had actually not created anything new these rabbits uh, had been produced for many years by by scientists to study all kinds of you know drugs and um, essentially there's a, a genetic alteration that allows them to to glow, uh, they 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 uh, in, inject this gene from a, a jellyfish in the Pacific that that glows naturally, um, and it allows them to trace, you know, the activity of of different uh, drugs that they're they're experimenting on, and so, you know, he he hadn't actually produced anything new, but he had brought it to light, and I think that again and over and over again, that's what we see in these these cases is that there's an enormous amount of activity behind the scenes, you know, not not in the public, uh, under the public glare, um, where these rapid, you know, transformations are, are occurring. Uh, but it's only once it's brought into the public sphere that there's a response. And so, you know, his, his point, and I, and I think my point as well, is that it, 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 this is a necessary activity, actually, that it's, it's important um, to bring these things out into the open um, so that we as a, as a culture, as a society, can you know, not just encounter it, but really have a, a, a meaningful debate about how we should be proceeding. You know, the scientists had no, you know, they they, they had no compunction about, you know, using these animals, creating these <clears throat> transgenic species for their experiments, but, you know, they didn't do a public opinion poll. <laughs> and and so really what the, the story is about is, is, is the role of art and, and the role of narrative to bring these things out and to force a deeper conversation about, you know, the merits and costs and, and morality of some of these massive transformations that are are, gonna, are are already, you know, occurring at this rapid clip. Well, that, Nathaniel, is the great virtue of your book, because it does bring these questions into high relief, because you tell the stories so well. And, and the, you, you, you point to a future where the human body can be cultivated like a garden, but how we cultivate it is an open question. And your book establishes the the, the terms of of that kind of question, and and it's for that reason a, a a truly necessary book. Thank you. That means a lot to me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Nathaniel Rich, for speaking with us today about your new book, Second Nature, Scenes from a World Remade. Thank you for having me. It's a thrill to thrill to, to speak with you. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details. <laughs>